I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me once again in the book of Genesis. We find ourselves this morning in Genesis chapter 14 as we continue working our way through the very first book of the Bible, the series that we entitled Origins. We began at the beginning of January and have walked through verse by verse the book of Genesis. And so this morning, we're going to look at a message entitled Mystery King and the gospel. Mystery king and the gospel. As we look at the text this morning, I need to just say from the outset that our kids today have it really easy in some sense. And I think about that in relation to road trips. Like I've mentioned this before, but I took road trips as a kid in the 80s. Some of y'all are like, let me do the math. I'm 39 years old, okay? 40's coming, it's on the horizon, all right? But road trips in the 80s were not like road trips today. In fact, we had, for the most part, absolutely nothing with which to entertain ourselves in the car. I mean, you had a book. And that was about it. Today they have phones. You can download entire seasons of television shows on your device and watch. It's just not fair, church. It's not fair. But there is one thing on road trips that for me as a kid, I absolutely loved. And I would spend hours on road trips focused in on this one thing and for your benefit, I just want to expose you to it this morning. And so if you'll take a look on the screen. Does anybody remember Where's Waldo? I loved Where's Waldo. I would spend hours turning the page and looking for him and trying to figure, oh, oh, there he is. And, and they had trick people in the mix, right? They had some that kind of looked like him, but weren't it all the way him? And then you would find him. He was the focus of exactly what was going on in the book. You were trying to find where's Waldo at every turn. Now, This morning, we are going to be introduced to this mystery king in the second part of Genesis chapter 14. This king by the name of Melchizedek. It's a name that for us, it has significant meaning. We're going to explore that. But what we're going to also do, and I think is probably the most helpful thing that for you as a follower of Jesus, if you read through the scriptures, you begin to make connections throughout the scriptures where the book of Genesis comes alive even more as you continue to walk your way through the scriptures. And in a real sense this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to play Where's Melchizedek? We're going to find him first off as Abram encounters him in Genesis chapter 14. But then what we're going to see is that Melchizedek plays a vital role as we continue to move through the scriptures in Psalm 110. And then in the book of Hebrews, it is a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Abram encounters him here, There is a real sense for us 
that once again we are reminded that God always, always keeps His promises. We serve a God that fulfills His promises to us, fulfills His promise to Abram to bless him and to make him into a great nation. And that fulfillment ultimately happens when Jesus Christ comes to this earth and lays His life down and picks it up again through the resurrection, securing salvation for us. So if this morning you will indulge me just a bit, we are going to go on a journey together through the scriptures to find where's Melchizedek and what's the significance for us today. As we look, beginning in Genesis chapter 14, you just need to know that the first 16 verses is a lot of names and places. And I don't know about you, But even with multiple seminary degrees, sometimes I get tongue-tied. And what I've encouraged you before is if you'll just read quickly and confidently, people will think you know how to pronounce it, right? So I just want to encourage you this morning as we walk through the text, as I read through Genesis chapter 14, hang in there, and then we're going to focus beginning in verse 17 through the end of chapter 14, and then we'll look at Psalm 110, then we'll look beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, and again, hopefully we'll walk away this morning with a greater appreciation of a God who fulfills His promises ultimately in His Son Jesus Christ coming. So Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Carneum, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shava, Karathium and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. 
They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the Opes of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them, By night, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we would be able to see you would open our ears that we would be able to hear. And that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Church family, give yourself a pat on the back. We got through it, didn't we? We did good. You know, as we look at what's going on in Genesis chapter 14, I want to remind you of where we've been in this story of Abram. Abram was a man that God had promised he was going to bless, he was going to create into a great nation. And even though at that point in time when God made that promise to Abram, Abram had no children, God had promised that he would fulfill this promise to him, that through Abram, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We saw that not very long after that in Genesis chapter 12 that Abram doubted whether or not God could come through. Abram took matters into his own hands lying to Pharaoh in this season where he had left where he was supposed to be and journeyed because of a famine that was in the land. He lied to Pharaoh that his wife was actually his sister And we saw at that point him being rebuked by a pagan who said, why would you lie about this? And we saw that Abraham returns and we saw last week in chapter 13 that Abram, we see, has 
it seems, turned over a new leaf, that he trusts that God will provide, that God will come through with his promises, that God would accomplish through him everything that he had promised. Now, we have the privilege of looking back and seeing this transpire and it being the promise of a Messiah who would come, but Abram at this point is just looking ahead. He doesn't know what that promise is going to look like, how God is going to fulfill it and bring it to fruition. And then we encounter in chapter 14 this battle that takes place. And Abram, towards the middle of this chapter, gets drawn into the fight primarily because His nephew, remember last week that he had said, take whatever land you want. Lot had picked what he thought was the best land towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He had journeyed in that direction. Abram had gone the opposite direction. But at this point, he gets news back in verse 13 from one who had escaped from the battle that his nephew has been taken captive along with all of his possessions. And Abram at that moment decides it's time to go to war. In fact, 300, it says here, and 18 of them, that's his trained men, went in pursuit. He had divided his forces. We see here that he goes and he defeats those who had taken Lot captive and brings back the possessions, everything in this moment. It's a battle that is decisively won by Abram and his men. And you look at that and you say, Well, great. What's that got to do with anything? Well, what we're going to see beginning in verse 17, after it says here, his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. He had joined forces, not necessarily because he had to, but simply because Lot was in that general area of Sodom with the king of Sodom, and they journey back together. It's time to split up the proceeds from war, the things that were gained, the spoils of war. But I want you to notice that something happens in verse 18. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to first write down the main idea. I've mentioned it already this morning that we have every assurance that God will fulfill his promises. And we're going to see this begin to be unpacked here by this man by the name of Melchizedek in verse 18. And I want you to notice the first truth that we see in the text this morning is this truth. We see God reaffirm his promise to Abram. God is going to reaffirm his promise to Abram. And he's going to do it through this man, this priest king named Melchizedek, verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. 
Now, as we're looking at this this morning, I, I want to unpack just a couple of things. One is Melchizedek. What does his name actually mean? Because it's going to come in to play as we continue to journey through the scripture. And then also this location of Salem, that's where he's king of. What does that mean? And what is that pointing towards as well? Well, when you look at his name, Melchizedek, Mel is simply the terminology for king in Hebrew. And so he is king, and the next part of his name means righteousness. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, and the location that he's king over is Salem, which means peace. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness in a land of peace. And not only that, there's something interesting also says that he brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Not only was he a king, he was also a priest. Which when you fast forward through looking in the book of Genesis and into the book of Exodus, what you realize is that there's a huge distinction that's made between the priestly tribe and everyone else. The kings don't come from the tribe of priests in Israel's history, except we see it on the front end here, Melchizedek, this king of righteousness who's also a priest, comes to Abram in verse 19. I want you to notice what he says to Abram. He blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In this moment, what we recognize and understand is that this priest king, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, is saying to Abram in this moment, Abram, you did not get here through this battle or in this location of a land by yourself. You didn't earn this. You didn't secure this by your own strength or by the strength of your men. He says, blessed be Abram by Not his own hand, not his own strength, not his fighting forces, by God most high. The God, he says here, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. The victory that Abram and his men secured in this moment, Melchizedek, is reminding him, is encouraging him to recognize and to understand that that was only made possible because of the blessing of God in his life. God had made a promise to Abram, and in this moment, Melchizedek has come along to say, God is keeping his promise. And then in verse 20, he says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, in case you thought this was all about you, in case you thought you could take matters into your hands moving forward, remember that 
It is only on the basis of what God has done that you stand where you stand today. And I'd say to us as well this morning, as we gather together as followers of Jesus, the same thing is true for us today. We are not here because of our own strength and our own power. We're not here having secured our own salvation this morning. It has totally been a work of God in our lives. If salvation could be earned, we would not need Jesus. The reminder for us this morning as we look at what Melchizedek says to Abram here in this passage is that we are totally dependent upon the Lord to fulfill His promises. And Melchizedek reminds us that God does fulfill His promises. I want you to notice Abram's response at the latter part there of verse 20. Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, this king priest, a tenth of everything. It's really interesting because this is the first time in Scripture that a tithe is ever mentioned. And it's about 400 years plus before the Lord would lay out for his people in the book of Exodus that they should give a tenth of all that they earn to his work. But on the front end, Abram here demonstrates a measure of faith in giving a tenth of everything to this man, this priest, this king named Melchizedek. It's interesting, when you look at verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, listen to his declaration in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Abram in this moment is saying, my dependence right now is not on what I have. My dependence right now is on the God that I serve. I'm not depending on wealth. I'm not depending on riches. I'm not depending on any of those things. My dependence is totally on the Lord. So this, Genesis chapter 14, these verses, is the first time that we encounter Melchizedek. But if you'll journey with me over to Psalm 110 this morning, what I want you to know is that Melchizedek pops back up. As we look through the scriptures, as we try to answer the question, where's Melchizedek? We see him once again in Psalm 110. If you're taking notes, this is the second truth I want you to write down. We see God reveal the nature of the coming Messiah. And as he does that through the psalmist David here, I want you to notice how he describes him. Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, it should be up on the screen for you. The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here it is. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his watch. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, pens these words looking forward to the Messiah who would come. And I want you to notice how he describes the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. He says at the first part there that he will sit at the right hand of God the Father. Well, what do we find out? That the description of Jesus after he accomplishes salvation for us through his death and his resurrection and his sins, he ascends to sit where? At the right hand of the Father. David, thousands of years ahead, looking, says the Messiah who is coming, that's what he will be described as. But not just that, I want you to notice continuing working through Psalm 110, he says about him that he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's interesting is when you look at Melchizedek, there's no description of a beginning or end for him. And it's not because he didn't have a beginning or an end. It's just simply not within the scripture's purview to outline that for us. But it's a reminder for us that for Jesus Christ, our Savior, he too, God in the flesh, had no beginning and has no end. He is a priest forever. He is at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession on our behalf as a follower of Jesus. We have the assurance that we have a great high priest who has accomplished what you and I could not accomplish in our own strength and our own power. He is secured by his sacrificial death, righteousness for us, a once and for all sacrifice. Not only that, if you notice says the Lord is at your right hand in verse 5. Listen to this. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Not only do we see here the identity of our Savior on display, we're able to look back. They were looking forward at the Messiah who would come. But for us, these verses remind us that there is something we also are looking forward to. The day when our King our Savior returns and rules in perfect righteousness when he executes judgment perfectly on this earth. There is a day coming that we know without a doubt our Savior returns. And he returns as King of it all. 
He will set every wrong right. He will crush those who oppose him. There is no doubt. Our King Jesus reigns. Psalm 110. We see this name of Melchizedek. But journey with me once again to the book of Hebrews and chapter 4. Book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books and at some point in time during hopefully my ministry here, Lord willing, we'll be able to walk through this book together verse by verse, but it's one of the greatest books for me that ties together what we see in the Old Testament explained through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The first few chapters is simply lifting up who Jesus Christ is, that Jesus is better than the angels, that Jesus is better than Moses, that Jesus is better than the priestly system that was outlined in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice as this is being explained in chapter 4, we see this third truth we see God remind us of our great Savior, Jesus, our King, Priest. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, listen, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice. Speaking here of the former system of priests offering sacrifices in the Old Testament, listen, for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. But notice verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you and says also in another place, here it is, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
what we're reminded of in the book of Hebrews is that the old priestly system was not sufficient to provide salvation that would last eternally, that we needed a Savior to come. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that it is Jesus Christ, the great King Priest who offered Himself as a sacrifice once And for all, as you continue to work through Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 and 7, we see it just on display. The writer of Hebrews hammering over and over and over again, Jesus is the great king priest after the order of Melchizedek. This morning, the question comes before us. Why does Genesis chapter 14 matter? Why does this king priest named Melchizedek matter? He matters because he is a reminder for us that our God keeps his promises. That our hope for salvation does not rest on us being good enough or righteous enough or us doing enough things to earn the favor of God. Our hope is in a Savior. A Savior that Abraham looked forward to. Hebrews 11 reminds us by faith. He believed God and His promises. For us, we have the privilege of looking back on. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we have a great Savior, a great priest and king. His name is Jesus. We don't have to doubt whether or not we are saved. We have assurance if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven of our sins and brought into the family of God. We have received his righteousness that covers our sins so that when we stand before God Almighty one day, we have a great high priest, an advocate on our behalf. When God looks at us, he looks at his son and says, what about them? And his son says, I paid for their sins. They're mine. You may have come in this morning and you've never experienced salvation through Jesus Christ. You have an opportunity this morning, I hope, to see that you have a desperate need for a Savior, a desperate need for a king priest who stands in your place, pays your debt of sin, and rises from the dead, securing salvation for you. Look no further this morning. It is Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, leave today worshiping a God who fulfills His promise, a perfect heavenly Father who gives us what we desperately need. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. As our worship team makes their way back up,
Maybe you've come in today and you've not yet taken that step of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want to encourage you to recognize this morning that your only hope for salvation is Jesus. Great king, priest who stood in your place, who took your sin upon himself on the cross and paid the debt that you owed, who rose from the grave securing salvation for you today. You have the opportunity to come to him. to place your faith and trust in Him for salvation, to receive forgiveness for your sin, to receive eternal life. I'd encourage you as we have an opportunity to respond this morning, whether you want to do that standing where you stand or if you'd like to come down and grab my hand or Pastor Aaron's hand, we'd love to pray with you and encourage you to take that step. Maybe you've got questions. I'd encourage you to fill out a connection card and give us an opportunity this week to touch base with you and encourage you as you take that step to trust Jesus as your Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus already this morning, I want you to just stand today with a sense of awe with a sense of amazement, with a heart that is grateful for a God, a heavenly Father who perfectly keeps His promises. You are the recipient of that today. And He deserves your worship. Father, we ask this morning that as we have an opportunity to sing and respond to Your Word, God, would You call those to yourself who need to receive salvation forgiveness for their sins that you would remind us as believers of what you've done on our behalf we ask that in Jesus name amen church would you stand and sing as we have an opportunity to respond